Welcome to Destination Change, a podcast where we talk recovery, treatment, behavioral health, and more. I'm your host, Angie Feather-Sutton, with the National Behavioral Health Association Providers. Our guest today is Marlon Rollins. Marlon is a PhD with LPCC LMHC and is a member of the California Hospital Association and a licensed therapist with more than 15 years of experience in mental health, dual diagnosis, and addiction treatment management. He has served as CEO and COO at some of the largest psychiatric hospitals and addiction programs in the state of California. In his role as COO and president of Addiction Services with the Noon Health Group, Marlon supports leadership to align operations to meet organizational goals. He also advises on strategic planning with the CEO and CFO to help enhance program services. Dr. Rollins is the author of Healing the Impoverished Mind, Building Resilience Through Adversity. He is a suicide loss survivor of his sister, Amber, who is a nurse and, and who battled addiction. He dedicates his work to honor her memory and caring of others. He's a board member of the United Survivors International. He has also served as a BIPOC mentor with the American Association of Suicidology and is a member of the steering committee for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Dr. Rollins is passionate about enhancing quality of life and well-being through high-quality care. As an ordained minister, he uses his faith and experiences to inspire others to seek healing. Dr. Rollins, thank you for joining us today. And thank you so much for having me, and thank you for all that you do for this community. I really am grateful to have a platform to continue to share and reach out to people, so thank you. Now, if I was reading your bio right, you were a minister first and then got into behavioral health. Am I reading that, that right? That is right. So I got early into ministry, which kind of got me into realizing of kind of the church was a healing place. And so when I was in my late teens, I went to a church and felt called into the ministry. Uh, and I served in a Pentecostal church. This is back in Indiana. And then was ordained when I was 21. So I kind of took on the title of elder at 21, which is a little awkward to be called an elder when you're 21 years old. But again, I felt called into it. And it was there that kind of in prayer, of like, God, what should I do? I think we all Certainly, if you're kind of a college student, you're trying to figure out what your purpose is and you have this spiritual reckoning, if you will. And I was put on a path to say, pursue a degree in counseling psychology. And it was something that I had not really thought about, but I kind of dedicated my educational career and went into psychology because they didn't have a counseling psychology program in undergrad. So, yes, it started out for me in a ministry and then the ministry led me into pursuing psychology as a profession. So as a young age, uh, not only were you helping people with addiction and, and mental health issues and, and just struggling with life in the church, it became a call to, hey, let's let's pursue this as a career. And that's what started my journey into this space now of psychology and addiction, mental health, behavioral health, as we call it. Great. Now, um, as your bio mentioned, your your sister died by suicide. We'll we'll kind of hone in on that a little bit uh, more. We don't want to start out immediately. Uh, how many years ago was that? It will be ten years this December. And um, you know, in my sister is just her and I growing up. You know, and she was two years older than me. She was a role model for me. She was a, a nurse. She was the type of nurse that would do all the stuff that nobody else liked to do. Like, you know, the stuff that smelled bad, she would do it. She was really passionate about just taking care of people. And she had her own home health care business. It was called Serenity Home Health. She had the nursing license plate on the back of her car. It was really her, the core of her identity was saying, I'm a nurse. So she was a role model for me in the healthcare industry. And her and I always imagined 
that we would kind of combine our superpowers, if you will, as as a nurse, and I'm like the therapist. And um, but we growing up, it was just her and I, and just being very close together. She helped support me. She was my babysitter half the time, right? So <laughs> the stuff that you do as an older sister. So her and I had my point is her and I have a really special bond, and we also had a special bond when it came to helping other people uh, heal. And then tragically, I lost her to suicide after her and I actually worked in the same hospital together. This was back in Muncie, Indiana. I had finished my doctorate degree and was planning to take a job actually working as a school or a college counselor for because I was working my master's. I was actually working in the school system. But my pastor, who really was an adoptive father to me. My sister and I, our father, you know, was not home with us. Probably left when I was in maybe third grade. And so it left this kind of gaping hole. But I, through the church, I found uh, a father and he was a mentor to me. And he became ill soon after I finished my doctorate degree. And instead of taking this new job to move down to Southern Indiana, I um, stayed nearby and worked at the local hospital. And it just so happened my sister also worked at the same hospital. My job was a little bit different. I worked in the emergency room. I worked at a community mental health center in a crisis department, answering the phone, doing assessment assessments, doing intakes, going into the emergency rooms, assessing people who were in a mental health crisis. I was always welcomed in, come on in, take care of this behavior health or addiction client. Can you get them out of our emergency room? That was kind of the experience in that role. I knew I was valued because the traditional medical model, they didn't want to have a behavioral health client come in and kind of jam up their emergency room, right? And take up the resources. They were not equipped. So my job was to go in as a contractor to see those clients, assess them, and as we know in our lingo, place them in the appropriate level of care, right? Staff them with the psychiatrist, et cetera. So I would do that emergency room. And then I would also go up to the, what we called a med bed consult, where if a, let's say a client had overdosed or they had a suicide attempt and they had to be admitted critically, then and they were stabilized i would then go on the emergency room or excuse me to the medical floor and do an assessment same thing sit at the bedside listen to their story do my documentation be a support and again the kind of the idea of being a, a minister and almost like a chaplain sometimes people would ask to be prayed for so whatever it was that i could do in that capacity my main job was to kind of getting them bridge them out of this crisis and move them through to getting the support that they needed so but what i would and my sister, she worked on a transitional care unit, which is basically where people who would, were either at the end of life, it was called a transitional care unit, end of life, or they had suffered a wound and they were transitioning back home. Sometimes people didn't make it. it they were at the end of their life. Other times it was just a really critical point in their life too. So I would go up and visit her you know, after my shift or late night, I'd go sit down in a hospital, do my documentation. So her and I were able to share time together. And at the same time, my pastor, my father, he was ill and several times was admitted into the hospital. He was admitted into, he was going into kidney failure and had a number of strokes and seizures that landed him in the same emergency room that I was working. Sometimes I was actually there when he was being brought in. I remember on one instance, he actually, while I was working emergency, he actually coded in the hospital. And I remember hearing this call for a specific room number. And I'm like, wait a minute that's my dad. And going up to his bedside thinking he's not going to make it. So, you know, he had to recover from the stroke. He was very medically unstable. And I 
and I started to pray really, God, what is it that I should do in the circumstances? What can I do? Because I was really there to also support and take care of him because he had mentored me all through my education and been a spiritual leader for, for me when my father wasn't there. So my sister, as a home healthcare nurse, she took care of him. Sometimes she visited him in the hospital. She would go, she, he, my, my dad told me she would come and just get counsel from him and sometimes kiss him on the forehead while he was sleeping. You know, it was, it was just kind of this lovely way in which she took care of him. So, you know, after praying, I got this revelation to, I remember very clearly, like sitting down and saying, God, what should I do? And just this, this voice came to me and said, this urge of donate him a kid, donate a kidney to him. And I was like, donate a kidney. I was like, well, how do we, you know, well, how's that going to happen? But I was like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. So the next Sunday I made this declaration that I would, you know, seek out and donate a kidney. And, um, so long story short, you know, about another year or so later, this is 2012, 2013, He's not really re medically ready to get a kidney, but I do go and I get tested and find out, lo and behold, miraculously, I'm a match. Like I'm actually a match for him. And we start planning it. And the next year, 2013, uh, at the beginning of the year, I get this news that my biological father, my sister's and I, Amber's father is found dead in Portland, Oregon. We had never heard from him or seen him. And it was heartbreaking, I think, for us both, and certainly for her as a daughter who knew her father a little bit longer than I did. But I remember telling her that our dad died and it just broke her heart. Like, I remember her just kind of sinking back into herself when I, when I had to tell her. I, I was tearful about it as well, just because we thought one day we would see him again. So with his loss, there was grief surrounding that but with his loss, too, it was like this extra urgency to figure out what I could do to save my pastor dad, right? And the plan was for as I would go through this kidney transplant, my sister would be, she would be my nurse to take care of me, right? Because I was taking care of him. She was, you know, the, the hospital was concerned. Well, who's going to take care of you? Take care of him. Who's going to take care of you? It's like, well, my sister's a nurse. She'll be there. She'll help me, you know, as I'm helping him. And we got this because and so that was the plan. And then uh, come sometime in April, when we were getting ready to proceed with the surgery, I ended up having like a medical crisis. And I write about this medical crisis in the book. It's really, it's very personal. And I, you know, if people are interested in reading about it. It's, it's, it's a story within itself that I, I won't get into detail here, but it stopped the surgery. It stopped us from being able to proceed. And I was devastated and very scared. The next week, my sister went through a mental health crisis of her own the next week. She had, after the grief and loss of our father, she was also going through a divorce from her husband, who was the co-owner of the business that she was in, the home health care business. And she had shared with me that she just wasn't doing well. But as a, as a, as a um, clinician, you, you always are taught, don't, don't diagnose your family. Don't, you know, don't be a therapizing your family and, and whatnot. So I kind of left alone. I was there to listen to her, but I encouraged her to definitely seek out and get help. But between the loss of our father, the divorce, and the stress and conflict that was happening between her ex-husband, she ended up in like a mental health crisis. Now, at this time, I had now moved away from the hospital and I was working in another city called Indianapolis, where I was the director of a crisis department now. 
and I was overseeing the inpatient hospital. And we were seeing, oh gosh, we had 30 patients a day coming through for a mental health crisis. And our job there, I was overseeing the team that did my job back when I was working in the hospital, basically, in addition to being the clinical director for the inpatients, like a 128 bed facility. But I got this call the next week and my sister's like rambling and uh, racing speech and thoughts and it's clearly disorganized. And I talked to my supervisor, who was the executive director. She was a nurse, too. And I said, my sister's in trouble. I need to go get her. So I drove an hour to go pick her up from where she was at in the in the streets. Her ex-husband was a former was a cop and had her arrested and was put in jail. And she was now out on the streets and kind of a basically what was could be described as a manic episode. And I took her to her psychologist and she, you know, actually her and I, her psychologist actually were in the same program together. So she knew me, but I didn't know my sister was seeing her. But, you know, I'm like, okay, I can get her admitted into the hospital now that I'm seeing. So she does her evaluation. She's like nodding her head like, yeah, she is not okay. This is, you know, some you know, symptoms of hypomania were going on and as well as delusional psychosis kind of thing. So I, she called the hospital. We did all the back end staffing kind of stuff to get her there. I put her in the car. She felt a little bit better, but she would, I could see her kind of just going off on tangents and whatnot. But anyways, this is my precious cargo. This is my sister now that I'm trying to help her through a mental health crisis and brought her to the hospital. She gets admitted. She is assessed. She goes through all the stuff that we did. She went in voluntarily at first. And of course you have to do all your testing and whatnot. We found out that she had drugs in her system and she tested positive for opiates. And when you test positive for opiates as a nurse, that means you have to be reported to the state. And so she was urged to self-report per the medical providers. She did. She called and found out her husband had already reported her right out of kind of the spiteful conflict that they had in doing. And she was absolutely livid. And she said, get me out of this hospital. And so she was now ready to go. She wanted to go fight back, but she was then put on a hold. So then she was in a psychiatric. This is her first kind of, you know, adventure, if you will, with the mental health system outside of maybe seeing a therapist on occasion. And now she was having to be flagged and put on a probation of her license because of misuse of, of this drug. So anyways, the divorce ensued. There was a lot of back end stuff. Of course, now I'm in the case management. I'm also the family member who's the discharge plan is for her to come and stay with me and to help support her. My sister was also a bit stubborn and didn't want to do that. You know, if, if you've ever tried to take care of a healthcare provider in, in the addiction center or in a mental health system, they're difficult patients and they know it and they are going to tell you what to do. So she was also that type of patient in feeling her trauma, feeling underneath that was her, her pain, her grief, her, the losses that she now was suffering and struggling with. So she, instead of her discharging to me, she wanted to go on her own and she did. So she just left. She, you know, her and I had some words and she said, I'm not coming back with you. You can't tell me what to do. I'm going to go back and I'm going to get my license and you know, she had her own plan, like we deal with with some clients who can be really difficult. Uh, she was that patient, and it was difficult because I'm a therapist, but I'm also her brother. And of course, she's going to pull that I'm the older sister card. But again, it was heartbreaking for her, for me to see her not go follow through. The plan was for actually her to step down and go to what we call our partial hospitalization, intensive outpatient for drug and alcohol use after her 
you know, stabilization was done in the psychiatric hospital, but she didn't do that. But at this point now she had lost her job because her nursing license was suspended and her husband had fired her from her home healthcare business that she had founded through the divorce. So she was in very much distress about not having this part of who she was and also dealing with the stigma of, I've been in a psych hospital, the stigma of now I have an addiction, right? From what she was before and she saw it was, you know, a mother because she had a daughter who was 13 at the time and a provider for her home and doing something she really loved. So after she ended up getting back into actually a treatment program back in Muncie, Indiana, it was the same treatment center that actually that I had worked in. She was going to do an IOP PhD because she realized if she didn't go follow through with getting treatment, she couldn't get her license back. Right. So she started going to the treatment center and doing her appointments and but she was struggling with, you know, not really having stable home because now her husband was separated. So she had to find another apartment. So all the stuff that addiction and mental health starts to rob away from you when it comes to your job and it comes to your, you know, just health and well-being, your, your, your work, when it's not helped in the right way, it feels like it's just so fragile. And so she was now in this space of my life is fra fragile. And then she was also trying to get some type of assistance to get back on her feet now. So, you know, that went on for a number of months. You know, the surgery that I had was now on hold with the kidney transplant. My sister was in no way or shape or form to be able to support me, right, as a nurse. So all of this now was delayed. Uh, and I was dealing with the own stress of being diagnosed with this stigmatizing, you know, medical condition. And I couldn't move forward with the kidney transplant. My sister couldn't support me and my, my dad's health was kind of in peril. And I still was going to work every day as a director of this, you know, mental health program. And it was a lot. It was weighing on me significantly. And I started to seek out help for myself, uh, just seeing a therapist and whatnot to kind of get a place where I could, you know, heal, if you will. You know, and I met with a therapist who, you know, matched my values. You know, we pray every session and, and so on. So that part for me was really meaningful, at least to have a safe space where I could talk about what I was feeling because I couldn't go to my sister. I couldn't go to my dad who was ill. I, you know, I, I'm the boss, if you will. I can't go to my team and put it on their shoulders. They, made, they knew about my sister. They were concerned about her, but they didn't know what I was dealing with with a medical condition. They didn't know how heavy some of these burdens were for me at the time, in addition to you know, thinking about the loss of my own father. So at the end of the year, um, I saw my sister, I think it was in Christmas, actually Christmas day, I went to go see her. She was clearly depressed, like looking back on it, she was like on the couch. She was back with some ex-boyfriend. Her daughter was staying, it was a small house now. She was in and we sat down and we reminisced all about all the beautiful things that we did as kids. And we laughed, my mom was there. We teased my mom because that's what we did. When you're kids, you make fun of your mom, how they do stupid stuff. But we always had our inside jokes and, um, you know, I was concerned about her, but I was there to lighten her day and just say, hey, I'm still here. I love you. She gave me a big hug, said, I'm so sorry when I came in the door because of all the stuff that she had was going through. And, you know, I left it at that. And, you know, then I go back to work and then six, six days later, I get a call from my mom screaming on the phone saying, your sister's done something to hurt herself. And I know she was still not well. And in my clinical mind, I'm like, it's okay. My mom's 
you know, she's reacting, she's upset. Let me find out what's happening. So I remember being clearly at lunch. It's like one of those moments where you just remember everything, sitting down, having lunch, getting this call. My mom is frantic. I go back. I say, well, I, I know what to do. I'll call the emergency room because I used to work there. So hi, this is Dr. Rollins um, here to get report. Amber Rose, you know, blah, 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 blah. And they're like, oh, we can't give any information right now. I was like, okay. And I'm like, okay, well, once she's stabilized, I'll just, I'll find out. They'll get her back in the hospital. We'll do this again. It'll be all right. I got this. I know I do this all the time. And I call back again. And I, in the background, I heard in the emergency room, I could hear the unmistakable scream of my mother, like screaming. And I'm like, oh boy, I, I know this. I know you, you know your mother's cry, if you will. And it struck me, the nurse, she disclosed, she says, she shot herself with a gun. And that just grabbed my heart immediately. Like, oh no, this is serious, serious. So again, I tell my boss, my sister is in trouble. Now my boss knows my sister because she was in the hospital earlier that year. So she knows, she's like, go take care of your sister. So I jump in my car and I'm like, okay, let me get on my way. And as I'm driving this is on december 31st which is also my pastor dad's birthday and i called and well i I didn't call i just made my way there and i get a call and somebody says to me what would you like to do with the body and it's the coroner and i'm like frozen in my car and i don't even remember how i got there from that point forward because I was the next person, of course, of notification on for her health record, emergency contract contact. So anyway, so now I make my way to the hospital and obviously my mom is frantic, kind of in a numb state, you know, of like, wait a minute, I just saw her last week. And I, my mom wanted to see her, wanted to see the body. I'm like, no, you don't, let's, let's, no, let's not do that. And, and I'm in a mode of, helping my mom, right? Because her daughter's died. And come to find out her daughter, my sister's daughter, was at home when it happened and was the person that found her. So I'm like, okay, where's her daughter? She's 13 years old. She was the most precious thing to my sister's in my sister's life. Only, only daughter. So I found out, of course, she was taken away, you know, and with her grandmother, father's grandmother, um, but safe. But the main thing was just to be there to find out what's going on. So, you know, I have this tragic, tragic experience and everything stops. Everything stops. And, and as a minister, now I'm back in a mode of like, OK, I've got to put together a funeral service because nobody else in my mother's side of the family, which we were raised by, had, had died. So but I had as a minister gone to participated in many funerals mm-hmm. and this is like now coming into january of the coldest coldest time of the year and i remember even organizing the funeral and it was so cold that they had to this whole county shut down and on the day that we were planning it and so it was like we all had to were like frozen in space of having to just kind of sit in our frozen grief and still not having answers. And everyone in my family is looking at me because I'm the mental health expert of like, Hey, 
what happened? Like, oh, she was drugged or no, wait, she didn't kill herself. Somebody else did or something else happened. So what, what is it like? Nobody, you know, this, the idea of somebody killing themselves is my sister was a beautiful, fun person. She's way more exciting than I am. And it doesn't make sense. Like, how does this happen? Right. We know that she was struggling, but we didn't expect this. And, you know, so I'm sitting there trying to answer this for everyone, for the family, as well as get through the funeral. And anyways, I, I can't tell you the, the, the depth of the grief. I mean, you couldn't even touch into it at a given time because I was still in the mode of a helper. Right. So I'm still a minister. I'm still a director. I'm still an uncle who has a niece to look after. I have my pastor father and his health. And, you know, I found myself just kind of going through the motions of now this grief on top of grief. And it was a true adversity in the sense of so many things happening in a short period of time and then being just pummeled with suicide where the guilt of what did I miss? Right. Mm -hmm. And trying to figure this out because I needed the answers. And then I went back to work. I'm going back to work. And my job every day was to help people who were trying to end their life right? Or struggling with it or helping families. And I couldn't even get through the audits on my documentation stuff. If I saw the word suicide, I would just like freeze up. Right. And then seeing a nurse walking down the hall, you know, I would tear up. And I remember it was then, again, I worked in an integrated healthcare system, meaning they had behavioral health and about six other hospitals throughout the, the city of Indianapolis. And Behavioral health was one of the specialties, and you know, my job was to oversee the front door of that that crisis center. And it just so happened that we had gotten a grant, a Garrett Lee Smith grant, for two point one million dollars to do a suicide prevention program at the hospital where I was working at. And I remember the vice president like announcing this, and I was not in a position where I felt like I could do much of anything. Because, like I said, I could hardly see the word. And my boss, who was a support at the time, was like, you know, whatever you can do to help. Or, you know, we know you're what you're going through. And But I would sit in meetings or announcing it. And I remember the vice president talking about, we're going to do suicide prevention. Suicide is preventable. Suicide is preventable. Sui and I'm like, I just lost my sister. Like, And I couldn't even, she said that too many times that I had to like leave the room and I'm like tears, you know, people are coming to help me. And, you know, I had a great cohort of people who were there, but I couldn't even like fathom the idea. So my, it was just very raw for me, you know, where sometimes we go to work and we think we can escape like struggles at home, personal stuff, but I couldn't get away from it because I was in the middle of it. So I took a lot of time. I went back to therapy to kind of work through that. And what really transitioned me when I, I even called back to, yeah, yeah, of course, I, I went back to where she died. I went through her notes and I looked at her, her personal journey and she would write things like, I can't stop. Why am I so weak? She was talking about the addiction, right? While she was in this, this outpatient program. And it was, I called the boss who was my former boss of it and said, did you know about my sister? Did you see clinically you're like well they were like you know so sorry you know well this happens sometimes and i'm like this is my sister like no like you don't understand like you don't get to make her like just anybody like what are you guys going to do differently like she's writing it down like did you know that there was a gun in the home did you know what did you know like did you do are you gonna do thing different like or are you just gonna so like well that's what that's what happens like so and i was just unsatisfied with that and 
so it really stirred my spirit even more to to do more and i was asked we took on this initiative called the zero suicide initiative and it was a zero suicide initiative uh institute and it was part of the the grant was to implement this program, but we also had to market it to the rest of our healthcare organization. Mind you, this is big. We're talking about good, maybe close to 5,000 employees, seven hospitals, 200 some ambulatory sites throughout the city. So there came a point where I, I, I decided that I would tell my story because at that time, this is again, 2014, people were knew about suicide, but we weren't really talking about it. It was still like, that's the behavior health issue. It's not our problem in primary care, but actually it was. Because people with cancer, people who had maternity, had postpartum, had, you know, all the other medical conditions that people were dealing were also having depression, suicidal thoughts, et cetera. And we needed to make sure that we were doing suicide prevention at every point of care. And so I went before the nursing leadership team and I told the story of my sister and they just, everybody was like in tears hearing her because they could relate to her as a nurse. And that moment showed me that my sister was still with me and the, and the way that she could keep, keep helping people was if I became a voice for her. And it helped me knowing that I had a background in psychology because I was a director, because I now had this terrible experience. I wanted to figure out how to now enhance this tragedy into creating something to help other people. And when I found out and I saw that by sharing her story and sharing my expertise in, the, in this field, I was actually helping people. And even my staff had a greater regard for the fact that they knew that this had impacted me. And they, so they knew that when I was asking things and wanted things to be better, so I took the energy of saying, hey, let, let's make it your job like that other person's job. I said, this is my job and, I'm, and our, my team, we're going to come together and figure out how to do this because nobody's wife, sister, mother, daughter, whatever, should have to die by suicide or you know, alone and suffering in their pain. And so that's what we committed to do. And I continued to do that with that company. And we put together a very extensive program that was embedded to the EMR. I won't get through all the details of it, but it was extensive to work on suicide reduction within that healthcare community. Um, and I, I would say that we did a phenomenal job. And but I still felt unsatisfied because as I was in the company, I was like, well, I needed a position where I can do more. Right. But I didn't know. And then somebody had mentioned to me about working with some of these bigger companies like Fortune 500s. And I reached out to say, you know what, I need to be in a position where I can have greater influence. And I sought out an organization that trained me on how to be a COO and how to be a CEO and then came out to California back in 2016 and was appointed as a COO of Fremont Hospital in, in the Bay Area. And immediately when I started asking questions around suicide, suicide prevention, I started to see after my own experience and what I had learned through this institute. Now, mind you, I'd also joined the steering committee for the Suicide Prevention Lifeline around 2014. I decided to raise my hand and I jumped on the board. This is before we went to 988. And this was around the time when Logic put out that song, 1-800-273-TALK, right? And there was this big marketing campaign. But the 988 back in 2014, 15 was already being put together. We were trying to, we were calling it N11. 
And, but we didn't have a number because we couldn't figure out what number to use. So, and then the big marketing came from Logic Song. So all that started up. So now we're one year with nine, because I would say to them, I say, if, if I was like, I know my sister would not have remembered to call 1-800-273-TALK in the midst of a crisis, right? Nobody uses 1-800 numbers anymore. So we, we all knew that this was antiquated. And, you know, I was like, if my sister's in a crisis and, or if anybody else's sister or whoever it is, you can remember 988, right? We know we can do a three-digit number, whatever it was. We didn't know at the time. We knew something had to change. So my my mission, personal mission, like, was to figure out how to make treatment better, access better when people are in crises. And that's really what started my journey. And then since then, I've been working with organizations from psych to addiction on how to integrate suicide prevention and just better care and advocate for, you know, fair treatment of people who are struggling with addiction and mental health. So you don't fall into this suicidal crisis. I, you know, I currently I work with Renewal Health Group and we, uh, and this is, we, we do addiction in LA, which is um, a place called Sanctuary. And then another place in Palm Desert called Phoenix Rising. And then we have a mental health program called Monterre. And then we have a program in Arizona called Zenith that is for adolescents and an eating disorder for adults called Trellis in LA. So now I'm in a position where I'm a part of the leadership for these organizations with Renewal Health Group that allow us to, let's, let's talk about as a culture, as a community, as a healthcare provider, how can we make treatment better? And that's what I've been committed to do. And I take my sister's story with me because I like her still being with me, not so much how she died, but how she lived and re realizing how valuable people's lives are with the increases of suicide that we've been seeing year after year. So that's kind of my story, maybe a lot of it, but that's what happened. And uh, there's a lot more to it, but that's what's behind me and, and what I do. Well, that is definitely very emotional. Thank you for sharing. As I mentioned, when we met to talk about possibly doing this, I myself have had a, a good friend who died by suicide. Oh, so I'm on the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. It is the 11th leading cause of death yes. in the U.S., according to them. Yes. And uh, in 2021, there was an estimate 48,183 Americans died by suicide. Mm -hmm. How do you navigate that, that conundrum of, yes, there's suicide prevention, but at the same time, that guilt of... There's only so much, you know, could I have done more? Mm -hmm. Well, and that's the piece of it is always going into what else could I have done and what could it, because I realized that it wasn't just my, my task, that suicide prevention is a whole community. It is a whole healthcare provider, right? Including the family, right? And the individual. So it's not what I'm doing by myself. It's what I'm, am I doing in conjunction with everything around me, including like how we do treatment planning, how we do safety planning, how are we asking questions about, do you have access to something lethal at home? Are you having these thoughts? My, my biggest struggle was that I'd never asked my sister the question, like, are you thinking about, have you thought about all the stuff that we've been through? Have you thought about wanting to end your life? And having that very uncomfortable conversation as a starting point for me. And I realized that as providers, treatment sexual mental health, we to struggle with asking our clients that question. Like we're so focused on the diagnosis and the treatment plan, we forget about asking those important questions about safety 
when it comes to, are you thinking about suicide? And so that's the thing that really strikes me. And it's the belief that you can do something. It's so when you say that suicide is preventable, and then there's some people say, well, suicide can be preventable. And I say, okay, if suicide can be preventable, under what circumcise size, under what circumstances is suicide preventable? How can we make it better? And we understand that by the risks that already surround suicide and then looking at how to reduce those risks. And it beyond the healthcare community, there's a lot of things that we're that we could do that we're not doing. You know, my goal is to ideally talk, have those conversations and to educate people on what else we could do to be more suicide safe. Now, you mentioned the the suicide hotline, mm-hmm. which, again, if anyone is feeling suicidal, it is 988 nowadays. Mm-hmm. There's also a chat version, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Oh, do you know much about that? Yeah. Talk a little bit about yeah. that. So if you text the word help to 741-741, you'll be connected to somebody who can text you, which is great for youth and maybe take some of the anxiety out of it. Uh, remember, this is a full-on, vo- you know, volunteer service at different counties and, you know, different states have a different system set up. But if you text the number 741-741, help to that line, you'll get a text message and you can engage. And it's free. It's confidential. It's, the police are not going to show up at your house. You know, this, this is a safe line you can connect to to get the resources that you need. You can even say it if you have an iPhone. If you say to Siri, I need help. I'm thinking about wanting to end my life. It will connect you as well. Siri will come on and ask you, do you want me to call for you? And again, it's not, they're not going to come after you if you say it. It's not recorded in your phone. It's, it was set up because people actually were saying that to their phone to Siri and Siri didn't have an answer. So an algorithm was built to design it. So there's ways in which you can reach out for resources through 988, the text line, or, you know, saying it to your phone. Know that for especially with people with like anxiety, as especially uh, ma- you know, actually making that call might mm-hmm. be the hardest part. Mm-hmm. So th- that's part of the reason why I, I uh, am a fan of the chat myself mm-hmm. because that way, if if you're not wanting to be verbal, you can still be written text. Mm-hmm. I guess this is the best way to do it. Now, um, in your bio, we mentioned that you work with with BIPOC, which is short for uh, by Black Indigenous People of Color. For those who are unaware of the the abbreviation. I'm assuming they're at a you know a health risk of suicide as well. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, sadly, what we've seen really in the last just few years, significant increases in American Indian males have gone up in suicide deaths to one of its highest rates, as well as increases in black male youth has also increased above other groups. And it's really important to understand that if everything was equal, we would see everybody moving in the same direction. But there is groups, American Indian men and black men in particular, we're seeing those rates of suicide go up significantly. And we're also, if we're just looking at age populations, we're also finding our youth suicide rates also increasing. So as a, the now the 10th leading cause of death in the United States, you know, and it's not seeming to move in the other direction, we need to be looking at which, what do we need to do for those groups differently? So we talk about the word of social determinants of health, what's happening in those communities, how they feel about themselves, how they see themselves socially, what does it mean to get help? We already know that men tend not to seek help over women. We know that, you know, men die by suicides at 3.4 times more than women do. So there's that element of it. Um, But also, 
those that were with addiction itself puts people at risk for suicide, especially if you're using alcohol, because we know it's a depressant. I don't know how many people I saw in the emergency room that would say they would get drunk and they were suicidal. And they said, well, I'm not drunk anymore. But some of those people were drunk, suicidal, and they didn't make it. So the access to alcohol, drugs and alcohol misuse, overuse, especially in American Indian men, we're seeing alcohol use being, for those that have died, that alcohol played a role in that death or preceded the suicide. With that, July is BIPOC Mental Health Month. And I know that when uh, NBHAP sends out our monthly member newsletter, we send out updates of like upcoming months like that and ask where to go to help. I'm on the Mental Health America website right now to talk about what you can do during that. But what do you feel is the number one thing that someone who is in the industry could do to better improve suicide prevention? I think the first thing that we have to do is to normalize having the conversation about suicide and ask it. So had you thought, have you had thoughts of not wanting to wake up? Have you had thoughts of wanting to kill yourself? And then in the industry, being able to have conversations, do you have access to a lethal mean? Do you have a plan? So we, we know that 54% of the suicides happen with a lethal weapon. So we have to ask those questions. Do you have a gun in the home? Or is there access to a gun? Because usually that person who is suicidal is thinking about it. So that's part of it. And the other thing is making sure that we are checking in on those people more often that have more risk factors, right? Following up. Sometimes it is just like, hey, how are you doing? I'm concerned about you. Checking in. Are you okay today? That makes a big difference just even as a healthcare provider. Like when you go home and leave the hospital and somebody calls you or whatever and says, hey, how are you doing? I hope we check in. Is everything okay? You feel cared for. So the message is that we have to send for the especially for those that are higher risk, even those that are struggling with addiction, that you matter to me. And we put protocols even in our treatment center where people leave this. We check in on them after they leave our treatment center and say, hey, how are you doing? We want to make sure you're OK. And for those that are higher risk for suicide, we certainly check on with them more often because moving from treatment center post treatment discharge is one of the most risky areas. So. You know, as a healthcare provider, checking in, asking the questions, having a protocol of what you do really can help intervene. And that's what helps uh, suicide be preventable, at least reduces the risk for it. There are healthcare organizations have, that have has actually accomplished zero suicide for extended periods of time because they are paying attention to it. Their culture is leading for it and they follow with patients who are higher risk. Addiction centers, we need to get better when we're treating people who are in recovery. We tend to avoid it. And people who are in recovery tend to not talk about being suicidal because if they say it, they are worried that they won't get the treatment. They'll say, oh, if you're suicidal, you can't come here. That's the most common thing that I hear. So they just don't talk about it. And we need to be able to have the conversation. Like I've met with clinicians and they'll sit down and have the conversation with a, a client who has had a gun. And we're not judging them. We're saying, what was the plan? What, what's process the emotions behind it? Because you need to be able to be open and honest about what's going on so you can have a, a good plan to help that individual. Well, and I know from past experience, I've had suicidal ideation in the past. Thankfully, I, I am not now. But there's also a different, I mean, it's different, but the same that it's not necessarily that you don't want to be, that you don't want to die, that you just don't want to be alive. How do you, you know, so if, if that, you know, that's also a question is that more, like you said, the best way to do that is kind of check in and, and uh, you know, just say, hi, how you doing? Don't don't guilt trip them, especially, right. uh, you know, don't be like, I know the big thing is to not say, you know, 
please don't kill yourself i i would feel bad <laughs> because yeah. that just makes yeah. them feel even even worse yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that absolutely so you really have to you know empathy is a real skill and like check your own anxiety about asking that question and somebody saying yes to you and just be present with them you know you ask those questions have you thought about how you know has it have you ever made an attempt before you know, be a listener, be somebody who's comforting, but don't judge them and say, oh, my gosh, well, you can't do that anymore. You know, listen to it because right now they're opening up, they're talking about it and then come up with a plan. You know, the, one of the things that we I don't think we do enough of is really talking about helping a support system around that individual as what we call protective factors. Right. How do they have more resilience against it, against going into a suicidal crisis? Like many times they want the pain to stop. So let's talk about what that pain is. Right. So. They see the suicide as the only answer. So as you work with them, you can't say, well, don't do that. You just say, okay, well, let's talk about what does this look like for you? You know, what would, what would life look like if you were to stay around? Like take them on that journey of obviously sobriety. We know if they can maintain sobriety, that's going to be a protective factor, right? Having them attached to something, a cat, a dog, you know, making some kind of connection, your faith, having a spiritual you know, connectedness really helps you as well. And then access to follow up help and support. You know, those are the things we have to have conversations, but we have to go into what's kind of that, that darker space with them first and be with them and sit with them in their pain, showing them that we care, allow them to experience it, and then usher them into a place of hope. But you have to also have that conversation of making sure that they don't have access to something that in the throes of addiction or anger or in a breakup, that they do something to hurt themselves. And we can't say that they just want attention, right? Instead of judging it, be present with the person who's in pain. That's so, so key. So, I mean, those are the things that I would say with like working on destigmatizing it because the way in which we respond to somebody tells them like, oh, like if they say they're suicidal, well, we got to lock you up. Or we're going to put you in another facility. And they're like, well, this is why I don't talk about it. Yeah, this is why I don't open, exactly. open up about it. So we got to not do that kind of reactive thing. We have to like allow them to have the conversation and still feel cared for because they're safe. They're safe in that moment. And if they're in a treatment center with you, many times that they're safe too, right? It's when they've taken real action, they're writing a note like, oh yeah, I'm going to do this. Then you have to up it. Then you have to take those next steps. But that should not be the first response, right? So we have to respond with care before we respond with scare. Let's pivot a little and talk a little bit more about your book. You mentioned it briefly, um, but just kind of what made you decide to write it? Give me your elevator pitch about it, that kind of stuff. Yes. The book, again, is called Healing the Impoverished Mind, Building Resilience Through Adversity. So in the book, you know, part of it was for me to really heal in regards to telling a story that was pretty powerful to reach other people. So I go into detail and I talk more about my sisters and I's upbringing and what she went through in those kind of final moments leading up to it. The book is really about how to break these cycles and patterns of mindsets that we get into that lead to us not feeling lost, to lead us to feel lost and to how to find purpose, how to break out of those reactionary states of being the fear response, the flight response, because we feel threatened in some kind of way. And so in the book, I go over that cycle and then also provide some insights on how to break out of that to build to build resilience you know outline specifically more warning signs risk factors as it comes to suicide and also give some tips on how to 
Develop Resilience. It's a great book that can be used actually in a group setting. So the goal of the book was for me to tell this story, but also use this story to educate people about what you can do to help somebody who's struggling with a mental health crisis, an addiction crisis, or just a life crisis, and how to find resilience and deeper purpose through their pain. Uh, that's really what the book is all about. I wrote it after, after 2020. I had some time to sit down and realize that we had all experienced a collective trauma and many people we lost. And I wanted to speak into this space a little bit more and acknowledge that people are a lot of pain. And uh, my goal now moving forward is to help organizations, help other people work on suicide prevention, building resilience, because we're seeing, unfortunately, increasing rates of death by suicide, even outnum outnumbering the suicide or excuse me, homicides that we see in a year in the country. So my goal now is to use my platform and to help organizations to become safer, healthier, and certainly more healthier for their workforces. Because we know that healthcare providers in particular, like nurses, are at higher risk for suicide. Other industries as well, including construction, dentists, and physicians also struggle with suicide. And, and not to mention our veterans who are at higher risk for suicide because the amount of trauma that they face every day. So again, that's the, that's the goal, my personal goal. And the, the goal of the book is to speak into those places to help people to find deeper meaning, because that is a protective factor. When you feel as if your life matters and you know that your life matters, you take deeper value in that. And we all deserve to know that even if you don't know what your purpose is, your purpose is to live today and to know that your soul is here for a reason and to know how valuable that you are. And sometimes in the cloud of depression, you can't see how important you are to the person standing next to you to your, sometimes your spouse, your wife, your family. You think that it's better for you not to be here anymore, but I guarantee you that is a, the deepest lie. The thing that you should never believe is that you don't matter because I guarantee you, if you leave here too soon, the people will inherit that ripple of pain. You're just passing it on. And there are services, there are people that will help you get out of that dark place uh, and find renewed life. I know many people in recovery who have found new life and a deeper purpose in spite of their addiction and are just feel like angels on earth. And that transformation is what I'm all about promoting. And I, I just want to send that message out to anyone who is struggling with whatever life trial you're going through just to know that you're not alone. And more importantly, that there is a, a way out. And if you can't see it, close your eyes and imagine what it looks like. And just take one step towards it every single day. That was beautiful. I'm glad you mentioned mental health as a journey, because that's part of the reason we named it the podcast Destination Change is because the idea of recovery being a journey. Um, it's good to be able to hear that mental health is also a bit of a journey, mm -hmm. that it's not one straight Oh. Um, you know, start to finish kind of thing that you you backtrack and 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 mess up yeah. just like you do with recovery. Absolutely. In terms of resources for people who are either uh, in the industry or wanting to get more help, other than the nine eight eight line, what resources do you typically use uh, more most often in terms of for what you do? I use, I mean, Dee Dee Hirsch 
is a great organization that is kind of one of the helms of promoting 988. They have support people for people who are loss survivors. There is also a group called the Coalition, Coalition of Clinicians. So that is a support group also specifically for therapist providers who are loss survivors. There's another organization called Morning Glory, M-O-U-R, that provides weekly support for loss survivors. The American Foundation for Suicide Prevention has a tremendous amount of resources online, as well as SAMHSA does and SPRC.org, SPRC.org, Suicide Prevention Resource Center. They have a tremendous amount of resources specific to certain populations like American Indians. They have done an extensive amount of research. So if you're looking for protocols, you don't have to make this stuff up. A lot of resources are all out there. It's just about accessing them and then putting them into your programs. So those are the ones that I use when it comes to like program design. And then many places offer like free trainings. There's a CALM training, so that's C-A-L-M, which stands for care, I think access to lethal means as the ALM on that. It's a free training that you can get as well. It's a certification that helps you to have to understand how to have this conversation about reducing access to lethal means. So again, we've got to train our workforce better, get more confidence in having this conversation around suicide and make sure we're falling out with folks who are really struggling. Ask the question. When you see the warning signs, ask the question. Um, so that's what I have for you. Now, before yeah. we go into how people can get a hold of you, was there anything uh, that we haven't talked about that you wanted to or something that I you thought I was going to ask that I haven't? No, I, th- I think I've given you everything that's on my heart right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I, I appreciate that. That's good. Now, um, how can people get a hold of you if they want to learn more about you or if they want to if they have more questions about what you've discussed? How can people get a hold of you? Thank you so much. So you can reach me. Yeah, through social media. I mean, I'm on Instagram often there at Dr. Marlon Rollins, M-A-R-L-O-N, all one word. You can also go to my website at drmarlinrollins.com and you can email me there. If you go to renewalrecovery.com, that is, you'll access my team. And the best way I think is though through my website, email me, you can also email me at drmarlinrollins at gmail.com. You have questions. I'm going to clarify, is that doctor like spelled out or DR? DR. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. So it's okay. DR on Instagram, DR Marlin Rollins, DR Marlin Rollins, Gmail. So I try to keep okay. it simple. Ne- never assume. That's Thank you very much for coming. You've been listening to Destination Change. Our guest today was Dr. Marlon Rollins. Thank you for being here. Our theme song was Sun Nation by Kitsa and used via a Creative Commons license by the Free Music Archive. Please consider rating and reviewing the podcast on Apple Podcasts so we can get more listeners. In the meantime, you can always see more about the podcast, including show notes and where else to listen on our website, www.nbhap.org. If you have questions for the podcast, please email us at info at nbhap.org. Thanks for listening.